0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. As always, we appreciate you joining us for the AOHP Caring for Healthcare Professionals podcast. Uh, this one's actually a joint joint publication with the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty. So, we're hoping we can get a lot of really good information to a lot of people doing a lot of great work across the world. So, today we're going to be talking about one of the topics that comes up almost always on our frequently asked questions list, or our recommendations for topics, or different, um, different public publications, podcasts, webinars, and that is, unfortunately, workplace violence, which is a topic that has not only been affecting healthcare professionals for, for many decades, but it's actually been exasperated in the last several years because of the COVID-19 pandemic and other associated factors. So, today, we've got two fantastic subject matter experts. we got Donna Zangowski, and we've got Dave Johnson, both of whom you might remember from previous podcasts, um, where we were able to to get into details about about their careers and their experiences and everything. And so we're always excited to have their their input and perspectives on our podcast. But before we get going, um, if y'all would, um, Donna, we can start with you. If y'all want to give just a quick intro about yourself, um, career, education experience, anything you'd like to put out there for your um, for your bio. We appreciate that. Thank
1: you. Oh, thank you, Corey. And thank you, Dave, for being here also. So uh, I've been a nurse for 37 years. And and before that, for seven years, I was an instrument tech and a nurse's aide. So I've basically been in healthcare my entire life. Uh, I'm certified in occupational health nursing. I have a master's of public health in occupational health and environmental health. Um, right now, I'm working uh, at, as part of a COVID-19 education team, uh, and so that's kept me busy for the past few years. I'm the Legislative Affairs Chairperson for the American Association of Occupational Health Nurses, and I also work with the Maryland Nurses Association uh, on their legislative affairs and workplace violence issues. And I've been involved with workplace violence from a regulatory and, and legislative perspective since about 2014, after I did an internship at OSHA uh, and, and a research project on this topic, so I've been really involved around workplace violence issues since then.
2: Awesome. And uh, go ahead, Dave. Again, Corey uh, and Donna, it's great to be here, um, folks. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to come on with Corey and Donna. Uh, like donna i've spent pretty much my entire uh, journalistic career again i am not a safety and health professional by any means but i have uh, written about the the field studied the field interviewed uh, probably hundreds of professionals over a a span of 40 years i started as chief editor of industrial safety and Hygiene news way back in the stone age in 1980 and uh, uh, retired in 2020, and I and am now a consultant with the magazine. And I also uh, operate a little freelance uh, operation called Dave Johnson's Writing Shop, uh, where most of my work is still writing about various uh, safety and health topics.
1: Awesome! Yeah, that's fantastic. We definitely. Uh, appreciate all y'all's
0: service over the years. And Dave, as you were saying that, I just realized that I actually uh, I apologize I failed to respond to one of your emails where you were you were asking for some some perspectives about a topic. Um, so if that's not too late, I'll send that to you later today.
2: But uh, <laughs> Corey, uh, you get those emails from me just about every week. <laughs> you and uh, some of my other sources in my network. So uh, yeah, uh, sure, it's never too late. Always want to hear what um, subject matter experts have to say. So, sure. Fire away later today.
0: Cool. I appreciate you asking. All right. Well, so for today's topic, like you we said, we're going to be talking about workplace violence. So, unfortunately, as we know, it's one of those situations in healthcare where it's high frequency. It's one of those things where there's always a potential, whether it be working in the emergency department or on a patient care unit or even doing um, imaging or or anything in between there's always the chance that there could be a situation with whether it be a coworker, whether it be a patient whether it be a visitor family member and so it's important that we're able to identify how those hazards and threats come up and then we're able to figure out some of the best practices on how we can either avoid or mitigate those situations so we're going to get into that today and we're also going to talk about the ways that these situations have exasperated because of current events in the last several years slash decade and then also some of the some of the work that's being done over at uh, osha and joint commission and all of the different agencies that are talking about these these issues with the industry so first things first um workplace violence you know like we said it pops up in a, a number of ways um almost countless but um if we could let's kind of talk about that in terms of the ways that workplace violence tends to manifest in the workplace and um, in addition to that do we feel like um, there's any kind of misrepresentation of what workplace violence is when it comes from a patient or from a visitor as opposed to a co-worker um, Donna let's start with you on your thoughts please. Uh,
1: okay well well, definitely, uh, there's a tremendous amount of workplace violence happening and it's gotten worse during the pandemic. And and I can uh, I, I have some numbers to give you later on when we're talking a little bit about the pandemic specifically. But uh, well, we know it's manifested in many ways, right? It's physical violence, it's verbal abuse, it's threats. Uh, bullying, harassment falls under that larger umbrella of workplace violence. Uh, the biggest problem when you're trying to quantify what's happening is getting accurate numbers. Part of the problem is that it's vastly underreported, especially in healthcare. There's so many reasons for that. Uh, one of the things that struck me very recently uh, ANA did a recent survey of 12,000 nurses, and it's their second year of the pandemic survey, and they just published those results like within the past week. Uh, And that survey was done just this past January, and they were asking these 12,000 nurses, you know, does your organization care about your well-being, and does your organization respond to your complaints, right? So when they looked at nurses specifically under age 35, which in my mind is most of the nurses doing the hands-on frontline clinical care, you know, they're they're your uh, caregivers on the med surge units and in the ICUs, are these younger, newer nurses. When they asked, does your organization care about your well-being, less than 20% agreed. That's outra- That's terrible. When they asked, does your organization respond to your complaints, less than 18% agreed. That's a really sad state of affairs. And so when you think about, you know, are these nurses going to report workplace violence in all its many forms? And the answer is, is probably not because they don't feel their management cares about them and they don't think that those complaints are gonna go anywhere. And then if you do look at the numbers that are actually uh, reported, it's really difficult to get a handle on how many reports there really are. So there's no centralized reporting for workplace violence at every facility that gets shared, right? The closest thing that we have is numbers that are reported to OSHA uh, which we see uh, when OSHA gives that data to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And then the other way we get some numbers is if we get workers' comp uh, information from the state. There's problems with all three of those reporting structures. Um, and I, I, do you mind if I get into it just a little bit?
0: Sure. Anything you'd like to add is appreciated.
1: So. Talking about uh, workers' comp, right, every state has its own workers' comp, Um, but in general, they all require that uh, someone in the organization fills out a first report of injury. uh, And that's the form that gets sent to them when a person gets hurt on the job. And for the most part, all these first reports of injury have a section uh, under occurrence and the question they ask and i've got a form in front of me so i can you know have a reminder here the question they ask is how the injury or illness occurred describe the sequence of events that includes any object or substance that directly injured the employee or made them ill well if you don't put the right thing in that line on that form you might not know that this person was injured by a patient or a visitor or really that it is workplace violence, right? Because let's say the the employee was hit by a chair by a patient. If you write on this line, employee was hit by a chair, employee struck by chair, that's not gonna tell you necessarily that it's workplace violence. So the person that's coding this form might just say, oh, struck by chair, injured by chair, and they're not gonna capture it as a workplace violence event because workplace violence has a very specific code uh it's on this particular form it's a code 74 struck by another individual injured by an individual if you don't use that right code this workplace uh, this workers comp form is not going to indicate it was a workplace violence event right so that's the first problem with osha osha it's a really similar situation osha has a form uh it's it's There's this log that you fill out when anybody gets hurt, it's this OSHA 300 log, there's no particular category to check off workplace violence right so. There is no way to know on this basic log that it's workplace violence, what you have to do is describe the incident in a second form this little 301 form and in that there's a little tiny box that says what happened, you know tell us how the injury occurred, and that's a narrative box. There's no check, you know, there's no workplace violence check off there. You have to physically go in and write, well, this person was, you know, uh, bitten by a patient or this person had their arm twisted by a visitor. Uh, If you don't do that, the person uh, reading this form uh, when they go to do that uh, survey of occupational injury and illness, um, they won't know that it's workplace violence. And so again, even OSHA is not gonna code this as workplace violence event. And and when it comes down to finally looking at that data, we get to see that data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics several years after it actually occurs, because it takes a couple of years to get that data through their system. And then they go in and physically uh, do a survey. They don't look at the actual data from every workplace in your state. They do a sample so they i'm throwing out fake numbers they might pick 10 out of 100 you know companies and look at their data and then they actually read these little reports and if they don't understand that it's a workplace violence event it's not going to be captured like a workplace violence event so when they do their overall summary of workplace violence you will never know that that that's actually what happened so even on the, the the reports that we have we're losing the actual uh capturing of workplace
2: violence. Corey, I would just add that um, in my reporting, and my research, I think it's very uh, workplace violence really does not lend itself to coding or categories because it's really I would call it something of an umbrella topic or an umbrella term that uh, really covers more than just actual physical assaults and attacks, bodily injuries. Uh, For instance, uh, one definition of uh, one company's, more than one company I came across, uh, defines workplace violence as not only physical attacks, uh, pushing, shoving, choking, punching. Uh, Yeah, those are more likely to show up in records. But what about threats? um that are either real or perceived um there was one case i came across where uh, a family uh, parents of a uh, hospitalized child delivered an ultimatum to uh, one of the nurses saying they were very upset because the covid protocols said that only one adult could visit a patient at a time and uh, So this husband and wife team uh, threatened the nurse saying that if we can't visit our daughter together and if she dies here, we're going to hunt you down and kill you. Now, that threat is not going to show up. It should be reported to Donna's point. Reporting is very important. And that kind of threat um, should definitely be reported and investigated. but also, to, uh, to Donna's point, one of the reasons that uh, workplace violence uh, incidents uh, are underreported, uh, not only because they involve threats that are either real or perceived, um, but there's a, there is that lack of follow-up many times. I came across a, uh, an article by a San Francisco news station that investigated California OSHA and found that Cal-OSHA, listen to this statistic, Cal-OSHA took no action on 76% of the violent workplace incidents reported to it because in Cal-OSHA's estimation, there was no continuing threat of violence. Uh, So again, that's to Donna's point that why are healthcare people or uh, employees anywhere going to uh, report incidents, report threats um, either by patients or their family members if they don't feel that there's going to be follow-up and too often there is not follow-up.
0: Absolutely, yeah, Yale's comments uh, certainly resonate and I know in my experience I've seen similar situations on both sides of that where I've seen cases that were reported to workers comp or even a non-comp incident report and to be reported as a cut or a scrape or um, struck by you know any number of causes but unless you were present or unless you did a root cause analysis it wouldn't come out at least not on that surface reporting that it was a situation where somebody had pushed somebody or struck somebody or pulled their hair or scratched them with their fingernails um, in those situations, As we know, you know, they manifest from everything from actual malicious intent to um, patients that may have um, may have neurological situations or they may have. I to like,
2: uh, add, Corey, is I think there, is, there needs to be um, acceptance of a broader definition of workplace violence. Um, most people just think of it, I think, in terms of physical violence. But for instance, I also under the umbrella of workplace violence is verbal abuse. And I came across a, a quote in an article by a nurse saying that some kind of name calling is guaranteed from either a family member or a patient directed at a nurse or a healthcare professional. In her mind at least once a week uh offensive names being called just dumb being called there are cases where nurses have been called oh you're a fake nurse or you're cursing or you're disrespecting um, the the healthcare professional um so these verbal attacks are not going to be coded or categorized i believe um but again they should be um uh, disclosed by uh, the person that has been verbally abused. Um, there can certainly be psychological and emotional stresses involved with getting that kind of abuse, especially on a regular basis. Um, so there's a need to report, um, again, not only uh, physical acts of violence, but in this case, uh, verbal abuse. Another example would be social media posts. Um, there's examples of family members uh, taking the social media platforms uh, to, criminate, uh, to criticize or to try to intimidate or bully uh, health care professionals who they don't feel are uh, delivering the kind of care uh, or else they feel like they're hiding behind COVID uh, protocols and regulations and are, are protesting on social media. Again, that's not going to to show up on an OSHA form or a workers' comp form because nobody actually has been injured. Um, but it's definitely an assault uh, of a kind on uh, the dignity of a healthcare professional. It should be reported and it should be investigated.
1: Yeah, Dave, this is Don I, I completely agree with you. And, and that's why it's so important for organizations to have their own really strong internal reporting structure. and, and... And not only take these reports, but actually, like you said, investigate them, follow up on it and do something about it. So, you know, we can't rely on OSHA or even Joint Commission or workers comp or any outside agency to really fix this problem completely from the outside. It really has to be corrected internally and, and getting facilities to do that has been the crux of the problem. And I know we've worked around it, right? We have legislation and there might be state legislation and we're trying to get federal standards. And, you know, all those things are helpful, but the organizations really do have to get on board with having effective workplace violence prevention that does encompass all of the the vast variety of of ways that violence, you know, occurs in their facilities.
0: Absolutely. I, I'm glad y'all made your uh, follow-on comments that, that jog my memory of what I was thinking about there is uh, today's point about the uh, verbal confrontations or, or verbal assault even. Um, there's, I know in my case, we work in public health, so we have those type of situations frequently when when our teams will be doing community outreach or they've been doing vaccination missions or our COVID-19 testing, and there, there's been certainly a lot of that. Um, as we know, in the last couple of years of course we've all been working through the COVID-19 pandemic. It, it started very like a being shot out of a water hose and it never stopped. Um, so with that we've seen a lot of situations where there have been like y'all mentioned just a minute ago you know people that are upset about COVID-19 protocols or, or restrictions on visitation and whatnot um what are y'all's thoughts about how that has actually affected workplace violence do you feel like there's a significant causation or do you feel like it's a correlation um donna what um, do you think or Dave, either one.
2: well i was just going to start by throwing out a couple of statistics and then donna can certainly follow up but i came across some doing some research a 2020 global study found healthcare professionals were roughly more likely than other community members to be harassed, bullied, or hurt as a result, specifically, directly of the COVID-19 pandemic. And a second statistic, uh, at least 25% of physicians experienced attacks or harassment on social media on the topics of vaccines, guns, patient care, race or religion again, a quarter of all doctors have uh, been on the receiving end of this kind of abuse since 2020, when the pandemic began. So there's statistics that certainly point in that direction, Corey, that that correlation that you're talking about.
1: Wow, Dave. Yeah. I've I've heard that. And I'm I'm really glad that you had that data to share with us. So, yeah, I mean, It's definitely gotten worse. Anecdotally, I'd heard it was getting worse from my friends who were like nurse managers and uh, charge nurses. They were saying that it was getting worse, but we didn't really have the data and the evidence. So when they did that survey that they just completed, uh, they did ask a question about workplace violence. Um, So they said they asked if workplace violence and bullying had increased at their jobs. So 66 of those 12,000 nurses 66% 66% reported an increase of bullying, and 33% in- experienced an increase of violence. So that's pretty bad, and that, I think that kind of goes with the data that you had, Dave. Is that yeah, it's it's really increased dramatically. And you know why is that happening? Gosh, I think a lot of the problem started way back when COVID first you know arrived. That it was politicized so much. Uh, and then the the populace became polarized to where, instead of being a public health issue, it became a political issue. And that's a terrible way to take care of a public health crisis, right? Uh, we didn't approach it really as a public health problem. We had terrible public health messaging, uh, you know, do you need a mask, do you not need a mask? Is it going away tomorrow? Is it going to be with us for a while? Uh, You know, there was confusion, and that left a big gap, right, for for social media to fill the void. You know, if if you don't have good public health messaging at the beginning, folks sort of fill in the blank, and I think that's what happened. You know, on social media, the anti-science folks had a chance to really get a foothold. Uh, and because it was so political, really, it was a recipe for disaster. If you wanted to do, you know, a a course on what not to do during a public health emergency, I think you could probably take everything that happened with COVID-19 and use it as an example, you know, of what not to do. And, and I think overall, you know, that stress has. Uh, brought stress into every facet of society right we're having stress at home trying to navigate you know kids not being in school and ill family members and trying to go to work, you know when you're worried about getting sick yourself and. it's you know been difficult, certainly on the job if you're a healthcare worker it's it's been kind of a nightmare, frankly. And so you know that stress is kind of all around us and other folks are responding to that as well. And I don't know, you know, I mean, we're living through one of the worst pandemics we've ever we've experienced in this country in a hundred years. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely had an impact.
2: Yeah, I would go along with uh, what you're saying, Donna, about uh, uh, the major factor of political polarization over the pandemic. Uh, and actually, we can get into this later with, a, I think, another issue Corey wants to touch on. But this political polarization began certainly before the pandemic. The pandemic has certainly exacerbated it. Um, and uh, I, I believe it's led to, um, like Donna was talking about, a lot of personal um frustrations, tensions, anxieties, uncertainties, not only over the public health messaging, but as Donna said, whether you're talking about healthcare professionals or patients or the family members of patients, uh, as a society, uh, we have faced in the last couple of years, uh, worries, like Donna pointed out, over personal finances, over job security, the schooling of our children, uh, the effects of lockdown, isolation, and you take those kinds of um, stress uh, stress points, pain points, if you will, uh, and then add to that uh, some practical issues like uh, long wait times in emergency rooms um, can lead to a lack of patience and frustration and maybe some verbal abuse, if if not physical abuse something as practical as those uh, long uh, ER wait times in many hospitals um, uh, because of staffing issues. Um, And the COVID protocols, certainly, and visitor restrictions and mask usage have um, uh, certainly been part of uh, that political polarization story with uh, millions, as you know, everybody, we've all read the uh, articles over the last couple of years with really, millions of uh, members of our society basically having the attitude you can't tell me what to do when it comes to wearing a mask or social distancing you have a number of uh, people who believe that it's not a pandemic but in the words of one article i read uh, some protesters uh, will call it a scandemic um so i think there's there's a variety of um Factors and pressure points that go into um, COVID uh, just compounding um, the existing uh, workplace violence problem that has been there, as both you and Donna have said, Corey, for for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: um, that's that's certainly um, it's an interesting. I don't know if phenomenon is the right word for it but the way things have the way things have progressed over the last several years i I always speak to people about this and compare it to you know my experiences in the military where uh, in in the air force i was in emergency management so we dealt with counter chemical biological radiological nuclear and explosive hazards and in that case you know the air force and the, the military in general they have very particular regulations around dress code and and grooming. So you have to have a clean shaven face so that not only is it for dress and appearance, but also that if you have to put on a respirator within nine seconds of a chemical attack, then you're going to get a seal and you're going to live through it because we all know, you know, VX nerve agent or, or sarin gas, it it doesn't take much, you know, maybe 0.02% concentration to to kill somebody. And so it's, it's very much a, Life or death, very immediate action, very high severity, very urgent situation and with the pandemic, it's interesting because it's shown that probably I, i'm I'm taking a swag at the numbers, but at least fifty to sixty percent of the population doesn't view a severe acute respiratory syndrome like covid nineteen or or even um, influenza you know which is still a major situation every year they don't view that as a high risk situation and so they're willing to bypass those protocols around that and it it really if i was a sociologist i'd be very interested in researching why that is um you know of course it being invisible has a lot to do with it um it's interesting too because a lot of people that are very much uh in disagreement about covid-19 they were very much supporting the protocols against Ebola when that landed in Texas back in 2014, and I'm wondering if there's a difference because Ebola is very much visi- very much visible. You know, it's bloodborne pathogen, body fluid. So if somebody's and and I say this with the highest amount of sensitivity, if somebody's in late stage Ebola, it's very obvious. Um, whereas with COVID-19, unless somebody's on a ventilator, people tend to look at it as though they have a cold or a, or a flu. So it's really interesting how that's turned about. But to y'all's point, it certainly has led to polarization. And a lot of people are very, very upset about those protocols. And that has translated into into violence on a lot of occasions. Um, so that kind of brings me to the next question. So we all know there's a situation. We all know that situation has resulted in some really horrifying outcomes, you know, everything from uh, verbal altercations to physical altercations all the way up to shootings mass shootings at times so just horrifying situations and so that's been being looked at by a lot of people ranging from safety committees at individual locations to environment of care under joint commission all the way to osha and um and joint commission as a whole um so i'd like to i'd like to know um you know what are y'all's y'all's thoughts and experiences about um regulations and standards do you feel like it's going in the right direction do you feel like there's there's some some gaps that need to be addressed. Um, what do you all think about that? Um, uh, Donna, you want to start?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I, th- I think it's heading in the right direction. Let me just start by saying that, because you know sometimes I guess I, I don't want to come off as sounding negative on it. We are heading in the right direction. However, we definitely have a long way to go um, in terms of OSHA. OSHA has been working on a workplace violence standard since it asked for uh, information back in 2016. And and it's had guidelines long before that, I think from maybe 2008 or 10 or something, it's had guidelines, which are actually quite good, but they don't really carry the weight of being enforceable. Uh, And so getting an actual OSHA standard is really important because it's enforceable right now. If OSHA were to go to a hospital uh, because of a workplace violence complaint, it would have to uh, cite that hospital uh, under the general duty clause, which is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it takes a long time, and there's, you know, not a lot of uh, positive outcomes happening around that. It, it's it's not been very successful in in reducing workplace violence or being a deterrent. So we really do need OSHA standards specific to healthcare and social service for workplace violence. And right now they are still working on it and they're at the small business review stage. They've been at this stage for a couple of years. Um, I'll say the last administration perhaps wasn't moving it along very quickly. Uh, Now it seems to be back on the agenda again and I know they are putting together these small business review panels. And they they are doing that, how long that's going to take and how it'll happen on its own, I'm not really sure. It might be quite a ways. Uh, the Joint Commission has done something uh, exciting. Uh, this past January 1st, they came out with their own new workplace violence standards. Uh, they actually added workplace violence language into some existing standards, and then they actually created some some new ones as well. And they took effect January 1st. So I actually uh, was on the AOHP listserv and I'd asked the group, has anybody had an inspection since January 1st? Because I wanted to find out if they noticed the difference. Are the joint commission surveyors actually asking the questions and looking at the information that these new standards say they're supposed to do? But unfortunately, I didn't get any feedback from anyone. And that just might be because really nobody's had a, a joint commission inspection since January 1st. Or, you know, so I don't know you know it's it's too soon to tell and i'm, I'm hoping to get more information as time goes on on that, but if they work. Uh, the joint Commission uh, would be, you know, requesting that facilities, uh, you know, do a work site analysis related to workplace violence right they're supposed to have. Uh, a workplace violence, uh, you know, team. They're supposed to have a centralized reporting system for workplace violence events. They're supposed to do investigations when an event happens. They're supposed to do follow-up care for employees that are injured. Uh, And they're supposed to make sure that their reporting structure is something that's easy to use and is available to everybody, you know. So there's some really good stuff in these standards. How it's going to work in practice kind of remains to be seen um the other thing that's kind of interesting and i i don't know that it's ever utilized is the joint commission does consider uh, a serious workplace violence event that injures an employee a sentinel event and i know anybody in healthcare you know we've heard about sentinel events that happen up to patients you know certainly if a patient you know a surgery in the wrong body part or you know a, a patient death you know uh due to an injury or, I mean, there's certain things we know are sentinel events. Well, a serious bodily injury to an employee from workplace violence is also a sentinel event. And we can report it as a sentinel event. I mean, you can make an anonymous report to the Joint Commission uh, on their patient safety reporting structure. Uh, They have like an online uh, form you can fill out and you can ask for it to be anonymous and you can report. as a sentinel event, a workplace violence injury. Now, I don't know that folks use that method, but it's possible that if the Joint Commission decides to take that report, then they would require an investigation. Uh, and and you know, I'm just putting that out there as a thought. If folks want to utilize that avenue, uh, they can. They can also call OSHA, of course. And you know, make an OSHA complaint, uh, but because there's no standard, it would be a general duty clause uh, violation.
2: I'll come at this from a slightly different point of view. But in early early last year, in 2021, the House of Representatives passed a bill called the Workplace Violence Prevention for Healthcare and Social Workers Act. And a key component of this bill would require OSHA to set a workplace violence standard. As Donna said, OSHA has been working on it for six years now, but uh, this legislation would require OSHA to set that standard by 2025. Well, uh, that legislation is now in the Senate. And uh, as we know, uh, the Senate is very polarized and gridlocked and preoccupied with uh, bigger issues. Unfortunately, this is a big issue, but there there's worldwide crisis going on right now. And there's still uh, aspects of the pandemic that have to be dealt with. Congress has a full plate of issues. And just my opinion, uh, as a journalist uh, watching safety and health legislation, try to be uh, passed through both houses of Congress, um, really over the last numerous decades, seldom has happened. I can't remember the last time Congress uh, passed um, safety and health, uh, occupational safety and health uh, legislation. So I would say the chances of this bill Um, which is now in the Senate and the Senate working on it anytime soon. uh, I would say the odds are not in its favor. Just, just my opinion. Um, And and one other thought uh, listening to Donna and again, just my opinion. But it seems to me that the Joint Commission is in a better position uh, as a regulator. to make a contribution to really uh, uh, improve uh, healthcare workplace violence prevention, compared to OSHA, um, again as uh, as Donna said, uh, OSHA can use the general duty clause. It doesn't have a specific standard, of course. The general duty clause is very difficult um, uh, for OSHA to uh, to follow through on, and uh, Reach a settlement agreement uh, with the party involved. Um, and uh, even without this legislation that would mandate an OSHA standard in a couple of years, um, as Donna said, OSHA will continue working on the standard. Um, but I would say it's still years away. I forget what the the average <laughs> length of time it takes for the agency to issue any kind of new standard, but it's probably eight to 10 years. And when it comes to workplace violence, uh, I came across again in some research that, for instance, there's some pretty strong opposition to OSHA issuing a workplace violence standard. Um, The American Hospital Association, for instance, is on record as opposing an a workplace violence standard because it would be burdensome, of course. Of course, it would also act costs. And uh, the position of the AHA is that um, hospitals are already um, have in place preventive programs and don't really need the feds to come in and make those programs stronger. Uh, it's the association's position that those programs um, are already existing and growing in number so um with that kind of um uh, big time lobbying opposition to an osha standard plus just the, uh, the hoops and uh, that osha has to jump through to set any standard i think it um it's going to be a while uh, if we ever see an osha workplace violence standard whereas as donna was talking about the joint commission has already Made uh, moves and added requirements. It's probably too early to tell what the effect will be, but it leaves me with the impression that the Joint Commission is certainly uh, pretty far ahead, OSHA, of uh, OSHA when it comes to um, to really confronting workplace violence in healthcare.
1: Yeah, Dave, you know, I definitely agree with you about the the OSHA standard taking forever. Yeah, I think it's something like 10 to 15 years to get a standard in place. And yeah, it's going to be a while. And I I was at some of those hearings uh, when the uh, legislation came through a few sessions ago on workplace violence, and uh, the American Hospital Association always sends someone to speak against it. You know? And so, yes, there's a lot of opposition, and it's, it, it's not going to be an easy thing to get an OSHA standard. Even to get that the legislation passed in the Senate to sort of force OSHA to hurry up on the standard, uh, yeah, I agree with you, I don't see that going anywhere uh, in this session of Congress either. Unfortunately, you know, I wish that it would, but but I agree with you on that. And yeah, and the good thing about Joint Commission is that they're already in these facilities. You know, everybody already yeah. gets Joint Commission yeah. inspection every couple of years. I mean, it's not like waiting for an OSHA inspection. I mean, you might get an OSHA inspection once every 50 years, you know, with the number of surveyors that they have. So, you know, uh, it's if there's real potential for the Joint Commission standards to make a real difference. The the proof in the pudding will be if they really uh, enact them fully on the ground when they do their surveys, you know, that will be the thing and and I'm, I'm hopeful, uh, but, but we'll have to see. Yeah, maybe in a year's time, we can get more data on that and come back okay. and talk about it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I can, I can echo that as well. And in my experiences is is with, and I'll tread lightly with this because I I don't want it to be misinterpreted, but it's interesting in the, in the operational healthcare world, if you're, if you're speaking to people about OSHA, like uh, Donna was just referring to there, you know, a lot of times people may think, you know, there's a very, significantly low chance that OSHA is going to show up at our door Um, but with joint commission if there's a direct impact from joint commission and that may be observed or found on a joint commission um, audit then there's a at least in my experience there's a much higher chance there's going to get traction behind it I know that happened with respiratory protection in the past decade where you know people would, well, OSHA required 1910.134 requires you know these components for respiratory protection program and there were a lot of a lot of people you know i won't say who but there were a lot of people that you know they would well you know that there's a pretty good chance we're not going to ever get looked at but when joint commission started asking those questions you know during their round tables during their visits then it became very real and people, okay well, we really need to get this sorted out and the things we have been working on very diligently and encountering you know pretty good amount of resistance suddenly the doors opened and we were able to get the complete hazard analysis you know everybody logged we were able to get all the medical evaluations current all the fit testing and really get all that situated so i feel like y'all are y'all are certainly um resonating with me that if that was to come from joint commission that you know these these sentinel events are they're they're happening very frequently and they're high severity. We need to be able to get this going. Then um, there will be a good impact to come from not only increased reporting um, in a in a wider wider scope of what constitutes workplace violence, but also a push for particular leading indicators and being able to identify potential threats of violence and then being able to communicate those and take the appropriate actions for de escalation and response and and identify what the expectation is for that response so people aren't worried about um well do i choose between being accused of a patient safety violation or do i get punched in the face instead you know because that's also a very um very consistent factor there is you know people are afraid that if they do anything to to mitigate workplace violence then they're going to be accused of trying to harm a patient so a lot of factors there um your, your input is fantastic um so that kind of brings us over to the um, over to the last part of the conversation. Um, is is there anything else that we haven't we haven't talked about yet? Anything you'd like to like to bring into it? Um, Dave, we can start with you. What are your what are your last thoughts today?
2: A uh, couple of thoughts, uh, Corey, real quickly. Um, uh, you asked uh, you asked us uh, in the questions you sent out. Um, uh, where does this anger come from that, that, that drives workplace violence, not only in healthcare, but, um, in, in just about any workplace, unfortunately, and came across some articles that, um, recent articles just in the last year or so with titles like, boy, Americans sure are angry these days. Another one talks about the country's collective rage, um, another one talks about, we live in an anger incubator. Um, and these are, these are society wide um, uh, snapshots of perspectives on, on this anger, which uh, can lead to not only workplace violence, but it can lead to road rage, it can lead to Uh, civil unrest and protests and counter protests. We've seen a number of examples of how this can play out. And I definitely think it does go, um, it does predate the pandemic. The pandemic, as we've talked about, certainly has made it worse. But I came across this uh, Gallup poll from 2018, before the pandemic. And Gallup questioned uh, Americans and found that 22 percent about one in five Americans had felt anger the previous day. Um, and uh, Gallup also found that only 20 to 30% of citizens polled believe the country is on the right track right now. So if you have these kinds of emotions um, bubbling up within people, uh, Workplace violence is certainly going to be one of the the consequences, and uh, uh, I think uh, it it just goes to show that there's a long history of uh, emotions and attitudes and uh, perceptions, frustrations, stresses um, that contribute to uh, what can be violent outcomes and the last thing I'd like to mention, Corey, is uh, when you talk about preventive measures, um, two strike me as being really important um, that the healthcare community can take on without any regulatory assistance from OSHA or the Joint Commission. Um, and I'm sure these will resonate with Donna, who's lived the, the life. But in doing research, one was Uh, The importance of zero tolerance policies and uh, came across a California utilities zero tolerance for workplace violence policy. And it states that the company will not tolerate any weapons on site or on personnel, any threats of actions creating real or potential hazards for employees and others certainly will not tolerate violent physical contact. Will not tolerate threatening communication to employees or their families will not tolerate beyond uh, physical contact will not tolerate harassment bullying stalking any action real or perceived again that um, can provoke fear or diminish a person's dignity in the workplace and uh, this company specifically states that uh, the excuse of oh i was just joking around or oh i didn't meet it uh, will not be tolerated and not taken as an excuse and so i think that kind of uh, that's just one case study example of what a zero tolerance program how strict it can be um and it, it, down on paper putting those uh um uh, preclusions and and restrictions down on papers. One thing that, that zero policy, zero tolerance policy has to be uh, reinforced. The other thing that I've seen um, more corporations uh, within healthcare and outside of healthcare doing that, I think uh, in the long term um, can maybe tamper down um, this societal uh, anger and anxiety and uncertainty or uh, the growing number of well-being uh, initiatives and wellness programs that focus on everything from exercise, sleep, nutrition, ways of destressing, ways of uh, self-care, mindfulness, hydration. Um, I think uh, companies that are really serious about those kind of uh, well-being initiatives and really put resources in them, um, uh, stand a much better chance in the long run of having a more engaged and somewhat calmer uh, workforce. So, to, two control measures, Corey. Uh, so, I. Have I your
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I definitely agree with you that uh, yes, having zero tolerance policies helps a lot doing more for your employees, you know, encouraging well-being helps a lot. Uh, Health care is so unique, though. It's one of the few industries where uh, if you have an unruly patron or an abusive patron, you're still probably going to have to take care of them. You know, if in <laughs> uh, retail, you can ask them to leave the yeah, store. You can't terminate
2: uh, them. Yeah, yeah.
1: no, it, healthcare is so unique uh, and, and that sort of. You reminded me of something that I didn't mention is, when we were talking about regulation: uh, is working at your local and state level. So, in, at the state level, there's lots of states that have workplace violence laws on the books. Uh, some of them are good, some of them are not so good, but you know, definitely uh figuring out if there are workplace violence laws in your state is very helpful what they are uh and working towards making them stronger i know i'm part of maryland nurses association and we actually have an interesting collaboration with the maryland hospital association and we have co-sponsored legislation together uh in the state of maryland uh to uh help uh with reporting issues around workplace violence and we're trying to uh, work with the state's attorneys generals about prosecuting workplace violence because just because you have a zero tolerance policy doesn't always translate into uh, a very violent patient having uh, charges brought against them you know that whole process is complicated very complicated and so a lot of support needs to happen around that um and it's really important to work at your state level and also your local level at your facility, you know, make sure you report you personally report all incidents yourself. Uh, if there's a workplace violence team where you work get involved with it, you know, find out how functional it is, is it meeting, you know, it, encourage your facility to do more, you know, by being an interested participant. Uh, and ask them what they're doing, especially if there's a law in your state, like there is in Maryland, ask them how how they're enacting that law at your facility. You know, Try and get involved. And, and I don't know, to me, the most important deterrent is a strong management commitment to preventing workplace violence in the first place. And, and to me, a success would look like a facility treating a workplace violence incident as seriously as it would treat a patient Injury or a patient incident, because we do a really good job, I think, of of looking at patient safety events. You know, if a patient gets hurt in the hospital, we're on it. You know, we we have a team of people investigating it. You know, we we don't let it sit and, and not respond to it. You know, we do good documentation around it. We do follow up training. We change entire systems when we have a serious patient incident, right? We need to do the same thing when we have an injured worker. We need to put that same energy and care into taking care of injured workers, of preventing worker injuries, just like we do for patients.
2: Yeah, just one more thought, Donna. To your point, I uh, came across uh, this bit of advice that um, if the first time in a healthcare facility or any workplace, if the first time you meet your local law enforcement officials or regional or federal um, in your jurisdiction. The first time you meet them is after a violent incident. It's too late. You need to collaborate and form partnerships and reach out to your local law enforcement and bring them in as part of your Workplace Violence Prevention Program. Don't make them strangers. Um, Get to know them. How they can help you, uh, similarly to how facilities will work with fire departments in advance of uh, fire emergencies. Uh, you don't want the fire department to show up the first time not knowing anything about your facility. You uh, just made me think of that, Donna.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that. It, I like how you mentioned that as well. You know, we have that situation where. Our, in our case, we do public health so it's a, it's a little bit different than, than being in a you know in a physical hospital or a clinic. but we've had that situation where we've been doing uh, mobile vaccination clinics and so we've made it a point to check in with our police department and make yeah. sure that we know who the local the local um, patrol is. And then should there be a situation, then our people know that methodically the expectation is to identify the threat, create reactionary distance, call for support. If it's immediately dangerous, then you fall back to a public location where you're where you're safe and you have good cover and concealment. And then from there we're able to make sure we know who the local local law enforcement is or security provider that can that can come there. And if they're not able to actually stay on post, then they have a quick response time, you know, generally about five minutes. So I totally agree with that. And that, that applies the same you know, in a a hospital, um, security and law enforcement is an excellent deterrent. And then should there be a situation having them available and knowing what, what the operation is and who's involved and how to, how to get there and help resolve it quickly is very important. Uh, But yeah, those are, y'all's input and perspectives is fantastic. Um, you know, as always, we, we could, we could certainly talk for, you know, another hour or more just on the different options for for preventative measures and different types of training and response procedures and whatnot, but, um, but we'll, we'll keep it at the hour for today, but um, if y'all are up for it, of course, I'd like to invite you back later. You, know, you have an open invitation. We always appreciate your being here.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me, Corey. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. It was a really interesting yeah, conversation. You.
2: Yeah, no, thank you, Donna, very much. Uh, You're living it on the front lines and very involved in the uh, political aspects of it. So you are a rich resource. Um, I'm glad that you're able to share your messages with with this audience and uh, a lot of other people through your outreach efforts. Good job. Mm -hmm. Yep.
0: Yeah, We appreciate both of you all being here. Definitely uh, fantastic. Expert points of view. Um, we yeah, to tie it up today for everybody listening, um, like we said, this today is a joint joint presentation between the Association for Occupational Health Professionals in Healthcare and also the American Society for Safety Professionals, the Healthcare Practice Special team. So in both cases, please check it out. There's all kinds of great happenings. Uh, AOHP has some webinars coming up, and Um, ASSP has some webinars coming up also, so definitely check those out, and um, you can find them on LinkedIn, you can find them on uh, aohp.org, or you can find ASSP Communities, which is inside of ASSP.org. Otherwise, podcasts are both available, and ASSP is at anchor.fm backslash ASSP-HCPS-Healthbeat. And AOHP is at anchor.fm backslash AOHP. So as always, if there's any topics you'd like to see, any particular resources like checklists or publications or anything, or if you'd like to get involved, if you'd like to be involved with the chapters or with the practice strategies, or if you'd like to be, um, be on the podcast, or if you'd like to write an article, we'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to reach out to us and we'll be happy to get you involved. But... For today, we'll go ahead and sign off and we'll talk to everybody real soon.